Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Hello, hello. I am Vina, and I am your Dark Travels hostess. Tonight, I'm actually joined by the husband, Jeff. Hi. It's been a minute. Yep, been a while. Like, a minute, a serious minute. Yep, been a long time. So, Happy New Year. Yeah, it's uh, 2023 now. Yay. How's it going for you so far? Uh, okay, I suppose. All right. All right. So tonight, we're, we're cracking our passports back to the past and heading towards the land down under. So when I was a kid, when I was, you know, young and spree and You're still young and spree and full of hope. When I was younger. Oh, younger. Oh, okay, okay. There were a few mysteries that was just like, wow, that's that's strange. It's curious. I wonder what happened. I mean, I only just recently learned about the Dilatov Pass, but when I was younger, you know, we had these... Again, the late night, Saturday night, Friday night shows that would come on and talk about this mystery or that mystery and just kind of, you would read up on it in books because back then the internet was in the process, but it wasn't necessarily readily available at our fingertips like it is now. So one of the biggest mysteries when I was... Young, full of hope, spree, was, again, in Australia, known as the Somerton Man. Now, this was a mystery that kicks off in the 1940s, right after World War II. And in between is the growing essence of the Cold War between the United States and its allies, and of course, Russia, Mother Russia, that's what we used to call it back then. Now we just say Putnam's a fucking asshole. But either way. So let's talk about this mystery that has actually been solved. It's a unsolved, solved mystery. From How does that work? Well, that's just it. That's kind of like, I think, the beauty of technology and time and DNA. You know, Back when I was younger, the idea of catching killers, much less, or finding out people's identity using DNA samples wasn't, in my mind, something that was even plausible. It was 
forensics was still in its very much infancy by comparison to what they can do now. Yeah. I mean, they can find your cousin. They can mm-hmm. find, I mean, that's how they found the Golden State Killer. Mm-hmm. They found, I think, a nephew of his through the process of DNA. So let's head back to the this great mystery that once captivated Australia and the rest of the world. On December 1st, 1948, at approximately 6 a.m., two apprentice jockeys were out and about. They were actually exercising their horses, and they come across this man who's lying on his back in the sand. His head and his shoulders are, like, propped up like he's watching the ocean. He is dressed in what they consider... An American brown suit. His shirt is white. He is wearing a red, white, and blue tie. His trousers are brown to match his his shirt, his jacket, excuse me. He's wearing socks. He's got a brown knitted pullover. And it's like fashionably gray with a double-breasted, you know, jacket that is of American style. With the exception of one, all of the labels on his clothes have been removed. He has no hat. And, of course, he has no wallet. And on top of everything else, he's got freshly polished shoes. And there's a half-smoked cigarette resting on his collar. Like, maybe it fell down. He was smoking his last, it was his last cig. Was he just taking a nap or what? No, he's dead. Oh. Now, he was approximately 40 to 50 years old. He was 5 foot, 11 inches. He was said to have grayish blue eyes, gingerly brown hair, and oddly enough, he was, for, for the most part, pretty clean. They did, however, note that his calf muscles were rather pronounced, and I'm quoting the uh, Paul Larson, who was a taxidermist, who was asked to embalm the body, and I'm going to quote him. His feet were rather striking features, suggesting he'd been in the habit of either wearing high-heeled and pointy shoes and... His calf was high and well-developed, such as found in women. So, like, maybe he was... Was a cross-dresser? Potentially. Mm. Potentially. Or a dancer of some sort. But maybe because he had no identification, his... All of this, you know, accumulates to strangeness. But maybe people started thinking maybe a black market trader. Some type of sailor. But more importantly, there was a lot of theories about him being a Cold War spy. And on top of everything else, when the authorities started looking into him and looking at his features, they did feel like he had an element of a European look, perhaps in the British-type manner. And... But he was wearing an American suit. Correct. Hmm. That was, again, missing most of their labels. And, and yeah, I mean, his his jacket was distinguishedly American. 
Now, they obviously came to the conclusion that he'd either been in America or had bought the clothes from somebody who had brought American clothes to Australia. And, you know, again, the only thing that was found in terms of writing on the label or the, the clothing was the word Kean, K-E-A-N. But they don't know. Now, the investigators obviously scoop them up, take them for further in an examination. They find in his pocket an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach. They also find a bus ticket from the city that they don't believe was used. They find an aluminum comb that was manufactured in the United States, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit, as in Wrigley's chewing gum, which is an American chewing gum. They also find a British band of cigarettes called the Army Club, and they find like a packet with different types of cigarettes. And then they find a box of Bryant and May matches. So he was a smoker, but he had on him, again, which is implying his preference, is foreign cigarettes. Because, again, working on the assumption that this man was Australian. But either way, juicy fruit, the cigarettes, they're all foreign so products. Australian guy with an American suit smoking European cigarettes. Chewing American gum. And sporting an American comb. And an American comb. Huh. Now, of course, the authorities start investigating the matter because this guy is just a collection of, he don't make sense. And they come across witnesses that say, I actually saw him the night before, but he looked like he was moving around. So I didn't think anything of it. And on top of everything else, there's no sign of violence. Wait, witnesses that saw him on the beach the night before. The night before, but he was moving, so they didn't. They weren't suspicious. Correct, like he was okay. McChillin. Mc McChillin, in his American suit with European cigarettes and American gum. Right, but they think he's Australian. They don't know. Okay, but he had European features. You said they believed that he had an inclination of German. Are of Britain, British, British features. features. Okay, so he's a smorgasbord. Correct. All right. They don't know who he is. They don't know where he came from. What they know is is that there was no sign of violence. He's not cut. He's not shot. And again, only the word "Kean" is written on some of the clothing. Now, of course, they conduct an autopsy, and the Paleontologist estimates the time of death at 2 a.m. the morning that he's discovered. So four and a half hours later when the jockeys find him at 6.30. He had died. So four and a half hours prior. They obviously look at his stomach. His last meal was a pastry that was eaten about three or four hours prior to death. But they couldn't find any 
nothing unusual, no foreign substance, no, and this is more importantly, nothing that pointed to cause of death. They do, however, note that there's a mixture of blood and his food in his stomach. Now, despite the autopsy, they are not able to determine the cause of death. Wait, is it his blood that they found in his stomach? I believe at that time. I mean, that's a great question. We're talking 1940. So they don't know. Yeah, correct. Okay. But there were three medical witnesses that basically looked at him and said, whatever killed him was not natural. And they kind of come to the conclusion that whatever he ingested was a type of poison that was so rare that not only did it kill him quickly, but it vanishes without leaving a trace in the body. Is that even a thing? And again, this contributes to the overall mysterious essence of this guy. I mean, it's 19, it's, it's the late 1940s in Australia. What kind of fucking poison are we talking here that they can't, that kills but leaves no trace and they can't find? Maybe something that they just don't know how to test for at that time. It's entirely possible. And, I mean, you know, I, I've never had the pleasure of going to Australia, but it I've seems to me there's a lot of fucking things in Australia that can fucking kill you. Maybe out in the, I don't know, maybe not in the cities, but at that time the cities probably weren't as big as they are now. I've been to, Correct. I've been to a couple places there, but, I mean, the cities, I would say... It was just like being in an American city. So there's not just shit laying around that's going to kill you. Scorpions not running right. amok. Right. But I guess it's possible at that time maybe there was that stuff. Just something you just, who knows. Well, either way, one of the pathologists, like Dr. Dwyer, basically comes to the conclusion and he says, and I quote, I am quite convinced that the death it could not have been natural. The poison I suggested was a barbiturate, a soluble hypnotic. Now, even though they suggested the poison as the main culprit of his death, they don't believe like he was poisoned with the pastry. So... They come to the conclusion that the poison causes basically heart failure. And and they do actually take samples to kind of clarify, but basically they have no answers. Is it possible that he just died from heart failure? Just right there, just heart attack or something? No, they think the heart failure was caused by... The poison that they can't find. Well, that's what I'm asking. I, mean, I wonder if it's... I mean, I know that's what their theory is at that time. But I'm wondering, is it possible they're wrong and he just died? You know, sometimes I think it's just best to leave it to the professionals. Yeah, maybe, I guess. But they don't know. This is true. If the professionals don't know, there's a big problem. However, you did say it's a solved, unsolved mystery, so somebody knows something. Down the some, line. At some point in time. 
So we're you're getting ahead. Now, this guy, this unknown guy, with all of these mysterious conundrums surrounding him, becomes almost immediately international news. I mean, Australia is blowing up, New Zealand is blowing up, and they don't. They're they're literally Australia is sending out fingerprints. They're sending out photographs all over the world. England, United States, as far as Africa, okay? They reach out to the FBI, and J. Edgar Hoover himself is like, we don't know this guy. We don't know this guy. Uh, he actually sends, J. Edgar Hoover actually sends a letter in January of 1949 saying, we don't know this guy, can't help you. Now, in the course of the investigation, the police learned that the day before he dies, he actually had somehow taken the train to the Adelaide Railroad Station from a location they don't know. They just know he got there on a train. And he had checked a suitcase into the luggage room at the train station. They also know that he bought a ticket to Henley Beach near Somerton Beach, but he didn't use it and... He made his way to the beach by the bus. So he's got like a lot of different options, and for some reason, he decided to take the bus. They, of course, find his suitcase at the train station. And one of the things that they basically confirm that it's his stuff is in the luggage is a distinctive orange thread that was actually used to repair his trousers. But again, nothing really provided them with any significant detail or direction. No, so again, in a suitcase with no ID. He just checked a suitcase. It didn't have a name. Uh, you, you know, there was a time where you just was like, I want to leave my baggage here, and they gave you a, a ticket claim. And all you had to do was return the ticket claim to, to collect whatever they were holding. Things were very different back in the 1940s. Yeah, I, people didn't blow shit up, I guess. Right. Now, the following year in April, one of the pathologists decides to reach, because, I mean, they're like, we don't know who this fucking guy is. And more importantly, and it's kind of almost sad, almost. We'll get into why it's not. Nobody reported him missing? Exactly. I didn't mean to cut you off, but. No, that's it. That's. I was just thinking that as you were leading up to that. I'm like, wait a minute. Reported somebody He's missing? been dead up until this point in time, you know, four or five months. Yeah. And nobody nobody reports him my missing. My husband, my brother, my child, my... Beloved. My boyfriend. Yes. Nobody. So they, they, got, they still got him. They're like, well, I guess we just have to dig a little harder, a little deeper. And in April, one of the pathologists actually takes a second look at his clothing. And he finds basically a hidden fob pocket containing a rolled up piece of printed paper with the words Tonum should on it. So it's like he ripped it from something. And Tonum should is actually Persian. 
So here we have Australian, American, British, and now we got Persian shit. And these words mean like the end or it's finished or finished. Now, when they look at all of this, they're kind of coming to the conclusion that this guy must have killed himself. Because, I mean, they literally have nothing else to come to. They dig. They do some digging, and they realize that Tunum Should is actually the final words of a poem from the Rubiat, which I'm probably mispronouncing. But it was a poem that was written in the 11th century by an Iranian polymath, Omar Khayyam. And... And as it was, just prior to his death, because remember, he died on December 1st, this rando guy actually showed up at the police department on November 30th, the day before he's found. And he's like, I don't know, you guys tell me, but I found this book in my car. I don't know who the book belongs to. I don't know where it came from, but here you go. That was it. So he contacts the police with the book. The they didn't get his name. They didn't nothing. It, he just said, here, have the, this book. I got to go. They actually kind of, it's interesting. The Australian police kind of does some interesting things here. Not criticizing. I'm just saying. It's because we'll get into something else that happens in a minute. So they're like, thanks for this book. But after they find this paper in April, they're like, Oh, it's like a puzzle. Here's the missing piece that's torn from this book. Now, you add this word and you look over this book and you see this poem. You're pretty convinced that he he did it to himself. But the book actually gives up two very interesting clues. Okay. The first is a handwritten phone number on the back cover. And so the cops do what any cop would do. They call it. They call the number. And it it's a number that leads into a woman who lived nearby Adelaide, which is a suburb of Glen Eagle. I It's English, but, you know, I mess you know, English up too. The woman's name is Jessica Ellen Tom Thompson, who goes by Joe. She's an Australian woman. She was she was born in New South Wales. And the police roll up. And one of the curious things that they do with him, because they don't know what to do with him, is they take a cast of his face, a plaster cast of his face and she's in absolute denial she's like i don't know him i don't know why he would have my number i don't know anything maybe he just bought the book or had the book or the book well he said he didn't know who the book was right no the the remember the guy with the car didn't know what the book was oh the guy with the car it's a different guy no we're talking about Joe Thompson. Okay, okay. She's a girl. Right, right, right. But, the, okay, okay. The phone number in the book, right. they call it Jessica, right. a.k.a. Joe. Right. She's like, I don't know this guy. Right. 
But they were like, hey, you did actually call us and said that there was this weird guy trying to visit you. And he inquired about you with the next door neighbor. And so that don't make sense there, Joe. And then they show her the, the, the plaster, the cast of his face. And she's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. She has Liar. this immediate liar, liar. upsetting reaction. And then she pulls back and says, oh, I don't know. Liar, liar. So then she says to the cops, hey, look, I know this is a big international scenario, but please don't mention my name. So that's kind of what they do. They actually withhold her information. And, I mean, later on, they kind of speculate that maybe she did know him. Maybe she was bumping uglies with him. But she was maybe potentially married or involved with somebody who had the potential of of uh, a future. And so they kind of just leave her alone. That's weird. So, but yes, she goes on with her life or she's already involved in her life. I don't know. At some point in time, she's she has a son. She has a daughter named Kate. and. Later on, when they, because again, this is a huge international mystery. They come back, and about this time, Jessica Joe has died. Joe dies in 2007. But. So they hadn't solved it all the way up to 2007. No. So now we're looking at 50 plus years. Correct. Or almost 50. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. They come back, and. Her daughter, by the name of Kate, actually gets interviewed. And and this interview actually gets conducted in 2014. I mean, this is how recent this is. She goes on 60 Minutes, and she's like, yeah, I think my mom knew him. And I'm pretty sure that they were potentially spies. So. The mom was a spy, too? Yes, because according to Kate, the mother taught English to immigrants. She was interested in communism. And her mother actually could speak Russian, which is not common knowledge, especially in Australia in the 1940s. And Kate says, I don't know where my mom knew all this stuff. I don't know how she got to it. And it kind of feeds into the notion that maybe something more nefarious was going on because the other thing that they find in the book, again, going back is a scribbled code that basically they can't solve. It's a coded message. They should have hired you. Well, they didn't know me then. Mm. So as it is, they're like back. So we're, we're still back in the 1940s. They're like, well, we don't know what to do with this guy. We, Joe says, I don't know him, even though her reaction suggested otherwise. We can't solve this code in this book. He's on ice. It, it's kind of time to bury him. So one of the things they kind of do is they kind of allow people to come forth to try and claim the body. And, I mean, all these people just kind of show up. Like, little, oh, he's my brother, or he's my... Weird, ain't it? He was a co-worker. And so 
the cops are like, well, you need to give us some more identify, better identifying factors here. And all these people show up and they're pretty much like, no, you don't know him. And to me, that's baffling. Why would you show up to claim a dead, a cadaver? 15 minutes of fame, man. Pretty much. Everybody wants their 15 minutes. That's what it kind of sounds like. So the police are like, no, we're done. It's time to bury the body, which they do in June 1949. The Salvation Army conducts the service. The South Australian Grandstand Bookmakers Association, and I'm not sure where they came from, but they they paid for the service. And he gets buried at the West Terrence Cemetery under the headstone, The Unknown Man. I wonder if it's still there. We're going to get to that. Now, 10 years after he gets buried, a witness comes forward in 1959 and says, Hey, look. I saw three other guys, well-dressed guys, carrying another man on his shoulders along Summerter Park on the beach the night before the body was found. And the cops were like, thanks, it's been 10 fucking years, but okay. And bear in mind, I know this might sound strange that all these people are on the beach, but in December, it's summertime in Australia. So... They're like, thanks for the information, but that doesn't help us any. 50 plus years go by. Okay. A professor by the name of Derek Albert hears about the Somerton man and is like, I've got to solve this. This is my Dolotov pass. I'm going to figure this out. And he's a professor from the University of Adelaide. And he's like... We have to exhume his body so that we can analyze his DNA to figure out who this guy is. And he's, I mean, in 1995, yeah. I mean, what a stark difference. I hear we're in the, you know, I was a young kid in the 80s hearing about this guy. 10, 15 years later, there's a lot of possibilities thanks to the forensics and the science surrounding DNA. And he begins campaigning. This guy, this uh, Professor Abbott, is so entrenched, he reaches out to family members, for people he thinks is potentially this Summerton guy's family. Well, how does he... He has the DNA analyzed, and then he starts reaching out? No. Or you remember, out- we, have the, we have Jessica, Joe. So he reaches out to Joe's granddaughter, and her name is Rachel. This is Joe's granddaughter? Yeah. What happened to Joe's daughter? Well, Joe's daughter's still here, but Rachel is the daughter of Joe's son, Robin. Okay. And Professor Abbott reaches out to Rachel, and he's like, I really think you guys are the descendant of the Summerton man. And... She's like, oh, well, this is, you know, intriguing. And they actually end up getting married. Rachel and the professor. Correct. This is weird. And they even, like, keep his picture, the Summerton man's picture, a portrait, 
a painting of him to kind of remind them of this mystery. They're this still trying to solve it. Correct. And eventually, Professor, I mean, Abbott even assigns his students to break the code that was in the book. He's serious about this. Yes. Yeah. He marries the descendant of the woman. Well, we think, we don't know, because has he, Correct. at this point, has he checked the DNA yet? I mean, or has it even ex- been exhumed yet? No. Okay. He's just like, we got to do this. He's campaigning. He's pushing for it. So what does he think? That one of Rachel's kids so, is fathered by the Summerton man? No, no, no. Rachel's or not the- Rachel. One of Joe's kids is fathered by yes. the Summerton man. He thinks... Either the daughter or the son. The son. Okay. He thinks Joe bumped a couple ugly sometimes. Yeah. With the mysterious guy. Uh-huh. And they produced the son. The son. Robin. Robin. Get it. Robin went on with his life, had a daughter named Rachel. But maybe it's... Remember I said... the. It's possible that Joe was like either she was married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Or now. she I found a boyfriend who right. was serious. Right, right, right. I get it now. And couldn't the matter couldn't be pursued. So did the? I guess I'm. We're probably going to get there, but now I'm curious. Did the professor? Did the professor Abbott ever exhume his body, dig him up, and test his DNA? So yes, twenty twenty one. In 2021, so now we're like 70 years later. Yes. Okay, 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 this is getting spicy. They is exhume his body. They need to make a movie out of this. So after, so yes, after years of campaigning and doing his very best to and solve this mystery. He started this in 1995. Correct. correct? Well, this okay. is when he first heard about it. He was like, I gotta, I gotta solve this. Right. This is, this is my jam. Okay, okay. The body gets exhumed. On May 19, 2021. Now, in another twist of scenarios, it turns out that Rachel, like the granddaughter, was actually adopted. So even though she's like, this is my family, she actually technically doesn't even have any so, genetic. So the DNA wouldn't match. Right. So they got to find somebody else now. Right. Now, in December of 2017, because, I mean, again, they did all these casts and stuff. Abbott gets the opportunity to reevaluate the evidence. And in December of 2017, they find what they call excellent hairs for extracting DNA in the plaster of the corpse. So all the, you know, they took the plaster of the face to kind of figure out. Because that was what they had readily available at that time. And they all submitted all this this evidence for analysis at the Australian Center for Ancient DNA at, you guessed it, the University of, Anna, of Adelaide. Now, even with the advanced technology, the process of this takes at least a year. And they were able to basically whittle down a series of genetics that led them to who would eventually become actual family members. And again, because Rachel was adopted, she was 
I mean, automatically kind of ruled out. Now, they do all this, you know, magical forensics magic that I can't comprehend because I can't even pronounce half the wording anyways. But Professor Abbott, who is actually working with a genealogist by the name of Colleen Fitzpatrick, and they make this grand announcement on July 20th, 2022. This is how recent, we're talking six months ago, less than six months ago. So they identified him. They know who he was. Correct. Or is. They whittled it all down. They used Through the DNA the magic. Genealogy and DNA. Correct. Science. Correct. It's science. Using the hairs. The hairs from the plaster mold. Correct. And they're like, our guy is a Carl Charles Webb. Carl Charles. Webb. Wow. And they find... The match of two distant cousins, descendants of Webb, both paternal and the maternal side. Yeah. So they whittle it down. They know who he is, without a doubt. So who is this mysterious guy that's held this world captive for 50, 60, 70 years? Was he a spy? This is kind of like the biggest fucking letdown. He was, he was actually born on September 16th, 1905 in a suburb of Melbourne, Australia. He was the youngest of six siblings. The family actually owned and operated a bakery. It was a family business in Springs, Springfield, Victoria, Australia. After the bakery closed down, he becomes an, an electrical engineer and an instrument maker. And in 1941, he marries Dorothy, or Doth, Robertson. And they go to live in South Eura, Eura. And five years into the marriage, in September of 1946, Doth is like, I'm tired of you physically abusing me. And verbally abusing me and threatening me, she leaves. She leaves him. This was in what year? 1946. Okay, so three years before he dies. Two years. He dies on December 1st, 1948. Oh, I thought, okay, I thought you said 49. Okay. So, so two years. Okay. It turns out Carl was very introvert. He had... Little friends, or little, you know, not a lot of friends. That kind of explains why nobody's, and if he wasn't married anymore, why nobody would report him missing. Right. Yeah. The guy went to bed at 7 o'clock each night. My kind of guy. He was pretty fucking moody and violent because he was physical towards Doth. And. They didn't have children? No. But he was fond of poetry, and apparently he was a poet himself. And the topic he loved discussing the most was death. Hmm. And it was his greatest desire to find out what death was like. Well, he found out. Yeah. And he became a worldwide sensation. This guy, who turns out to be an abuser, becomes this worldwide sensation so, in his death. Let's get back to the whole Joe thing. Did him and Joe have a child? No. Okay. All right. Uh, that's out. Not spicy anymore. Right. Kind of boring now. However, 
just so you have closure on the wife, Dorothy files for divorce on the grounds of desertion in 1951 because she don't know where he is. He's not bothering her anymore. So she, so he's been dead for two years, and he she files three for years. divorce. Two or three, like three years. I don't know where he is. I don't know. He's dead. <laughs> That's funny. She has no idea he's dead. Yes. But to bring closure to some of the other things, Carl had a sister by the name of Frida Grace. Frida lived about 20 minutes from her brother, Carl. And Frida was married. She was married to a gentleman by the name of Thomas Gerald Keene. Oh, Keene on the clothes. Yes. Okay. But what 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 happened was is that Frida's son, Frida and Thomas's son, died. He he went to war during World War Two. He died in nineteen forty three. And because John actually lived in the United States, he had money. He had American clothes. He had a bunch of American things that they believe that Frida just simply gave to Carl, which is why he was wearing these American items. It was the sister. Boring. No! I think that's a great... Well, it's a good unsolved, I mean, solved, solved unsolved mi- mystery. Took him 70 it, years to figure it out. Correct. But I mean, what, what bothers me is here this man was a worldwide sensation. And he turned out to be kind of a dick. And a nobody. So, like, it makes you wonder, you know, in 75 years, some of these unsolved murders or people that they find dead and they have no idea who they are, they're going to be able to dig them up and check the DNA and be like, hey! We and know who and he find is out, now. find your granddaughter. Like, find, hey, this is your grandpa. Yes. <laughs> but hopefully, and I don't see this happening anytime soon, you know, as time does pass, the information becomes more accessible. You know, the investigations, such as the Dilatov Pass, becomes more accessible and truthful. Mysteries like the Summerton Man would 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 be closed, but yeah. you know, for me, it's about the Dilatov Pass. But that's it. Interesting. I I just I had to say I I really kind of felt disappointed that he was just this jerk, just some rando. But mystery solved. All right. So normally at this point in the episode, I do our Facebook spill and. Invite people to send us any requests that they may have. But not tonight. Uh, Tonight, I'm actually going to close with a dedication. I don't think she listens to my podcast. And if she does, wonderful, but I doubt it. But I'm dedicating this episode to Greta Thunberg. Now, if you don't know who she is, she is a... Swedish environmental activist who 
is trying to tell the world about global warming. And if you don't know this, what has recently transpired, let me enlighten you. This all begins on December 22nd, 2022. As it was, this guy who fucking thought he was clever decided to send Greta a tweet about his 33 cars that he owns. And he starts listing his stupid list of cars. He's, you know, a braggart. And he asked her for her email so he could send her this list. Greta, not missing a beat, giving him the email address of smalldickenergy at getalife.com. <laughs> to which Andrew decided he was going to be fucking funny. And he posts a video. He posts a video of him smoking a cigar Talking, I don't know, it's hard to comprehend. Douche is not, I mean, douche is a foreign language that nobody should comprehend. But either way, as he is doing his video, he shows a a pizza box that he had just recently ordered. Now, in the background of all of this, all of these transactions, the Romanian police are paying attention. And they see the pizza box that old Andrew thinks is fucking funny to play with in this video to taunt Greta. And they're like, we recognize Jerry's Pizza. So, the Romanian police, who has a warrant for Tate's arrest for sex trafficking, raid his house. Today... Andrew and his brother are behind fucking bars where they belong and they don't have cars anymore. <laughs> good job, Greta, and good night. <laughs> Stupid.